he depicted all throughout the New Testament that teaching is vital to the church. Teaching is absolutely necessary for us. And yet, James is, is, is cautioning those who teach because they shall receive a stricter or a greater judgment. Teachers are vital to the church, but teachers face some serious temptations. You can imagine in the early church, as you have uh, a large amounts of disciples, many of whom probably weren't able to read, those who could read, those who could teach God's Word, they had a position that seemed very powerful. Those who were teaching large groups of Christians were in a position of power, and the temptation was to lord that power over others. In fact, we see examples in the New Testament of individuals for whom power had gone to their head. As we read John's writings in 3 John chapter 1, he writes about a man named Diotrephes who loved to have the preeminence among them and was resisting John's words. This morning we looked a little bit at 1 Corinthians. And one of the main problems that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians is that people have bought into a concept that they can follow one teacher. And so you've got a group here that's of Paul and a group here that's of Peter and a group that's of Apollos. And even more striking, there's one group that is of Christ. As if Christ were on the same level as Peter or Paul or Apollos. It was common in the first century for individuals to have a certain teacher that they followed, that they were disciples of that teacher. And they bought into everything that teacher said. And they had that sort of relationship. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he tries to remind them that Peter, Paul, Apollos are all just servants of God. And yet that's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge if we're in charge of a group of people to have that sense of authority and to allow that to go to our head. Teachers bear a great responsibility. James mentions that. He mentions that greater or stricter judgment. What does it mean to say that those who teach will be judged more strictly? Well, as we think about God's standard of judgment and we think about the role of teachers, teachers spend a great deal of their time speaking to others, telling others what God's Word says. That's an awesome responsibility, and it's a sobering one. And the more I teach, the more opportunities I have, just by virtue of the fact I'm speaking more, the more opportunities I have to mess up. And so James reminds us that those who teach need to be careful because there will be more opportunity. There will be a greater opportunity for those who teach to mess up, to say things that that aren't true or maybe even let that power go to their head. And so he gives them a very serious caution and we would do good to consider that. When we think about Jesus' ministry, do you know the people for whom Jesus had the harshest words? The scribes? and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the people who should have been the religious leaders teaching others, and yet that power had had changed their perspective. And they were wrapped up in tradition, and they wanted to hold on to their power. Because of that, they were missing the message of Christ. And so we see multiple times in the New Testament. Luke chapter 20, for example, when Jesus talks about the scribes who want to be heard for their many long words, or even the entire chapter of Matthew 23 as Jesus is pronouncing these woes to the Pharisees, he had some very harsh words for those religious leaders for whom power had gone to their head. And they were teaching things that weren't true. Have you ever stopped to think, and I'm running a risk by doing this, because, as you know, one of the things I do a lot of is try to convince people to teach in classrooms. So I run a risk by asking this question, but I think it's worth us realizing. Have you ever stopped to think, if you're a teacher, 
or if you have taught before, how much time is used in a single class? And I don't mean just 45 minutes. If you, for example, were even just teaching a class for a half hour, and you had 40 students, those are 40 individuals for whom you are taking a half hour of their time. When you add that up, that's 20 hours in that classroom. Now, what are we going to fill that 20 hours with? Are we prepared to share God's word in a meaningful way that will make the best use of their time? It's a sobering thought when we think of coming before our fellow Christians in teaching, and yet it's vital to the church. Do we need fewer teachers? No, we, we need more teachers. We need more teachers next quarter, by the way, if anyone's interested. But we need teachers who are, are willing to step in and take that responsibility. But all of us as teachers need to be concerned with teaching accurately and take James' warning seriously. Not only does he tell us to teach accurately, he also tells us to speak carefully. I like this quote that has been handed down through the years by Publius. I have often regretted my speaking, never my silence. Isn't that true? Think back to things in your life that you regret saying. We all have them, don't we? I have things this past month I regret saying that I wish I could take back if I could. How many times have we regretted being silent and not saying anything? And how many times have we regretted stepping out and saying something we probably shouldn't have said. You know, we enjoy talking, don't we? We like to talk, and we probably like to talk a little bit too much. In fact, I recently read a survey that said if you were to put all of the words we use in a typical day in typewritten form, front and back, that it would make up 54 typewritten, front and back, single-spaced pages. Now, If you're wanting a visual on that, just imagine that at the end of every day, you have 54 typewritten pages of the words that you've used. It's a lot of words. If we were to sit down and write a 54-page paper, it would probably take us a while. We get a little bit of an idea of the volume of 54 pages of typewritten. Now, if you were wanting to think about the amount of words we use in a week, that would be something like this. Front and back, single space, typewritten pages, you would have this many filled with the words that the average person uses in an average, in an average week. Now, let's say you were thinking about how many words you use in an entire month. Well, you'd have a stack about this big. Now, the question is, if we look at stacks like this, Uh, typewritten front and back of all the words that we use, just think about the words we typically use on a daily basis. How many of these are necessary? How many of them are needed? How many of them build other people up? How many of them tear other people down? I'm using a lot of words on a monthly basis, but what are those words accomplishing? As we think about almost 1,500 sheets of paper that I didn't want to take out of the wrapping because... I share an office with a few other people, and I didn't want papers scattered everywhere. So I've left them, in the, left them in their wrapping. But just think about a stack this large of typewritten paper with all of our words on them. What are our words accomplishing? We enjoy talking, and sometimes we enjoy talking too much. And it's interesting, as James uses all these powerful images to describe what negative effects our words can have, did you notice the power here? 
Look and see as he relates the tongue to, first of all, in verse 3, a bit in a horse's mouth that it may obey us, a powerful body of a horse that you're riding. Verse 4, look at ships, large ships that are large, driven by fierce winds, turned by a very small rudder, a powerful ship. And then in verse 5, how great a forest, a little fire kindles. We've already focused on the damage just a little flame can do. And did you notice the way he described the tongue in verse 6? That he said it defiles the whole body, sets on fire the course of nature. And look at what he says in verse 6. And it is set on fire by hell. There are serious consequences in using our tongue for evil. They accomplish very powerful negative effects in the lives of others. We like to talk probably too much. We don't like silence. How difficult is it when we go home at the end of the day to just let there be silence in our house? Isn't our first automatic instinct to turn on the television? When we get in the car, our first instinct is to turn on the radio. I had a friend once who told me he grew more spiritually in the two weeks that his radio was broken in his car than any other time in his life because he began praying as he drove rather than just turning on someone to listen to them talk or turning on music to listen to it play. Our words can do negative, lasting damage, but our words can also accomplish lasting good. I bet if you thought hard enough, you could remember something positive that someone said to you that changed your life. I would imagine that every single one of us can think of something positive someone said. That person may not even realize that it made such an impact on you. And yet it sticks with us when someone says something positive to us, doesn't it? The Proverbs writer in, in Proverbs 25, in chapter 11, the 25th proverb would say, Words fitly spoken are like apples of gold and settings of silver. A word fitly spoken is a beautiful thing. As we think about the words we use on a daily, a weekly, or monthly basis, how many of them are negative? Because if it doesn't take much for the tongue to do some terrible destruction, if it only takes a small spark to light an incredible fire, how much power is contained in the words we use on a weekly or monthly basis? But if just one phrase, just one statement can stick with someone for a lifetime and build them up, how much power for good is contained in the words that we would use on a weekly or monthly basis? Not only do we need to teach God's word accurately, but we need to speak carefully to select our words with wisdom. And yet there's another lesson that we need to learn as we think about the tongue. There are many destructive ways in which we could use our tongues, but let's look at just a couple of them this evening. Number one is mentioned in Proverbs 26 and verse 8. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. James tells us that when it comes to what we say, we need to live consistently. And the challenge in living consistently is that there are a few things it is easy to do with our tongue. One of the easiest things it is to do with our tongue is to lie. To lie to others, to lie to ourselves. Many of us are kind of like the young boy I read about recently who was standing up to recite a memory verse in his Bible class. And he got his memory verses a little bit confused. And he said, a lie is an abomination before the Lord and a very present help in the time of need. Now, when you combine those two things, you're really missing the point of what a lie is in the sight of God. In fact, when we read about lies and what God thinks about lying, 
He takes lying very seriously, maybe even more seriously than we do sometimes. Let's flip over to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul begins at the end of this chapter a list of some terrible, unrighteous practices. These are some things that as soon as we hear them mentioned, we think that this is evil in the sight of God. But look at what's included here. We'll begin in verse 28 of Romans chapter 1. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God or those who, who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Did you notice that tucked away there in this list of terrible things was that they were whisperers, backbiters, people who whispered behind others back, who who spread rumors that weren't true. In fact, earlier in the chapter, he said these people suppress the truth. And isn't that what lying is? We don't often think about lying as such a terrible sin that it could make it on this list. And yet in God's eyes, lying is something that he hates. In fact, when John writes in his gospel in John 8, 44, he quotes Jesus as saying that Satan is not only the father of lies, but that when he lies, he's speaking his native language. Think about that for a second. When I lie, I am not speaking the language of God. I'm not speaking God's language. I'm not speaking Christian language. I am speaking the language of Satan. Have you ever thought about it from that perspective? It's a sobering thought. When I lie, I am speaking in Satan's natural language. That's the way in which he talks. And when I lie, I'm joining right along with that. We also need to be careful about some of the half-truths and deceptions that we tend to pass off sometimes as, well, that's almost the truth. That's almost everything. I've, I've told them almost everything they need to know. And yet when we look back through God's Word, especially at the example of Abraham in the book of Genesis, do you remember what happened when Abraham told the half-truth? Not just once, but twice. On two separate occasions, once in Egypt and then once before King Abimelech, he told the half-truth that Sarah was his sister. Now, while that was half-true, while she was a part of that family, what we would think of as a half-sister, she was also his wife, a fact he neglected to mention. And what's interesting as we think about the consequences for this, in verse 17 in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord struck Pharaoh with the punishment that was due, just as if... He had taken Abraham's wife knowingly. You see, the fact that Abraham told the half-truth didn't allow him to escape the punishment. It didn't allow the Pharaoh to escape the punishment. And so as we think about some of the half-truths we're tempted to throw around, we need to realize that lying is very serious business to God. Not only that, but as we read through, notice what James says in verse 8. After he says, no man can tame the tongue, he says, it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Again, he's pointing to that consistency issue. 
He's saying with our tongue, we bless men and yet we curse, we bless God and yet we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Do I have the right to curse anything that has been made in the likeness of God? Do I have the right to speak evil of anything that God has made and fashioned in his likeness? Every person that I meet is a soul for whom Jesus came to this earth, died to save, and wants me to reach with his gospel. Every single person on earth matters to God. Every single human being is made in his likeness. So do I really have the right to speak evil against one of God's creation? It's a challenging thought, isn't it? Do I have the right to curse men when they've been made in the likeness of God? It's interesting to see the way Jesus frames this in Matthew chapter 5. If you would turn over with me to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. As Jesus has begun his sermon on the mount, we've passed through some of the more familiar passages in the Beatitudes and about Christians being salt and light. And he moves in in verse 21 and he begins to make a series of statements where he will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Again, he's teaching with authority. And in verse 21, he says, you have heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. This is very serious language. And Jesus is making a point here that not only is it wrong uh, to commit an act of murder, but that those thoughts and that hatred begins in the heart, and oftentimes that's evidenced by what we say with our mouth. And so if I'm saying evil things about someone else, that's an indicator that there's a heart problem there, that something's going on in my heart. And I need to fix that because Jesus says that the path I'm headed down is not a good one. And so when I think about speaking evil to other men, cursing other men, I need to realize God takes that very seriously. Jesus here says it is wrong to murder, but you know where that hatred begins? It begins in the heart. And what's in the heart usually ends up coming out in what I say. And so I need to think very carefully about what I say and examine my heart. Not only that, but we don't have the right to curse God. To take uh, the Lord's name in a way that makes it vain or common. In fact, even in the, the Ten Commandments, the core of the law of Moses, we see God make it very clear Not only that he should be honored above all other gods, but that his name shall not be taken in vain. I think it's interesting when we look through history and we see the scribes that would write, uh, that would record the the old law as they would write out the name of God. The name that we usually refer to as, as Yahweh. When it would come time for them to write that out, when it would come time to record God's name, they would go through a very interesting ritual. Before they would write it, they would go and they would go through a ceremonial bathing process and they would change, put on new clothes, they would write that, and then they would go and do the same thing again. That's how important it was to use God's name. And I wonder today in our culture, I wonder if we've lost some of the sense of how how important and how solemn it is to use God's name when we hear it used all around us flippantly and we hear people tossing it out. We hear it used in ways that are, that are common, ways that are even vulgar. And we need to ask ourselves, does, does that bother us? Does it bother us to hear that? Or have we spent so much time listening to the world use it that our consciences have become seared to hearing the name of our Creator 
used in vain. You see, James reminds us we don't have a right to curse other men and we don't have a right to curse God. And ultimately, we do have the chance with our words to help, to help others. We have the opportunity to live consistently. We have that, we have that ability. We have that decision that we can make. James tells us that you can't have salt and fresh water out of the same spring. You can't serve two masters. In other words, if I try to walk both sides of the fence, at some point, I'm going to get caught. And that's a principle, if we think about it, we've seen evidenced in our lives, haven't we? At some point, we're going to get caught trying to play both sides. At some point, I'm going to be in the middle of a joke that was hilarious to my friends at work, and I'm going to realize I'm at a church retreat. And I'm looking around thinking, whoa, wait a minute. I'm with the wrong group of people for this joke. Or I might be in the middle of a story that that everyone was into when I was telling it at school and everyone thought was great. And then I realize I'm in the middle of a youth group devotional. Wait a minute. This isn't the right setting for that. We can't have it both ways. We can't serve two masters. Eventually, we have to choose. And yet we have the opportunity. If we live a consistent life, if people can see consistent life in us, that we're doing our absolute best to follow God, that'll be one of the best examples we could set, one of the best testimonies that we could give for our Creator. James reminds us we have to teach accurately. We have to speak carefully. We have to live consistently. And ultimately, as we think about a fire that was started with just a few matches just a few weeks ago, I need to realize that if I'm not working to control my tongue, then I am playing with fire. James tells me I am playing with something that's so destructive it can cause untold damage. And the good news is, as Christians, we have the ability to read God's Word. We have the ability to pray to Him, to know that He hears us. We have the confidence to know that His forgiveness is available. And so when there are times that we say things we shouldn't have said, when there are times that we make mistakes, when we look at some of these words that we use throughout the week and we realize they aren't what they should be, we can bring those to the Lord. We can be forgiven. And we can have another chance to work even harder at controlling our tongue. To choose not to is to choose to play with something that's very destructive. And I don't think any of us here want to make that decision. If you're here tonight and you've never put Christ on in baptism, you've never turned your life around so that you can begin walking with Him as a member of His church, the gospel message is that it's open to all and that everyone can come and that by saying with your tongue, I'm going to obey the will of God and by following up those words with action, putting Him on in baptism and beginning that new life, you can have that forgiveness of sins even when we mess up, say things we shouldn't have said. We know that God can forgive us. And it may be that you're here this evening and you feel like you've been playing with fire a little bit in your life. That you've been saying things that you shouldn't have said. And you can, you can catch little glimpses of things that you've done as we've read through this chapter. Every one of us has fallen into that trap. After all, James told us that none of us is exempt from the challenges of controlling our tongue. But we're here tonight to help. What better time to come forward than in a room full of brothers and sisters in Christ who want to pray for you? and help you. If there's any need, please come as we stand and sing together.